1: All right, let's talk about some of the challenges when it comes to parenting and the whole issue of expectations. I think as parents, we all bring children into this world with a heartbeat, with a desire to want to see our kids successful. You know, we want the kid that will grow up to be uh, the doctor or the lawyer, and yet sometimes they grow up to be the artist. And in that comes a sense of disappointment we have as parents. Then, too, beyond the notion of, our ideals for our children, not necessarily matching their ideas or their goals. And there's the sense oftentimes you hear of parents who try to live vicariously through their children. Yes, we want a better life for our kids. Sometimes we want our life or the life that we thought we should have had growing up ourselves for our kids. And then the frustrating level comes in when, as parents, we try to raise perfect little children, and yet they turn out to be less than perfect. Is that a fault of less-than-perfect parenting? Let's find out as we are encouraged to, quite frankly, kind of uh, rethink our thinking and um, realize that we need to love our kids for who they are. That we no more need to worry about perfect kids. Joe Savage is the co-author of this new book. And, Joe, great to have you on the program.
2: Thanks. It's great to be with you.
1: Ah, there? Oh, there we are. Sorry about Hi. that. I my headphone for some reason suddenly failed on me. <laughs> Jill, let's talk a little bit about first some of the ideals that parents bring into this job as parenting. You know, I, I think the the notion that we want a better life for our kids. I mean, that that stands to reason. Um, oftentimes, we want our see our kids grow up to uh, to have better opportunities or be more success, successful, either economically or or socioeconomically than than we were coming up as our kids, and yet suddenly this goal toward creating these perfect little people can become very frustrating, not just for ourselves, but also for our kids.
2: It really can. And you know what happens as parents is, um, you know, particularly uh, with that first child, uh, that child is, you know, either you're spending nine months uh, preparing for them, you know, as, as they're uh, growing in your, your belly or they're, you're preparing nine months, 12 months if you're adopting And you are imagining what life is going to be like with them. You're imagining what they're going to be like. You're imagining what they're going to like and the things that you're going to do together. And that's all great. I mean, that's normal for parents to dream, but then we meet our real child. And all of a sudden, over time, as we get to know that child, often the imagined child doesn't match the real child. And so at some point, we really have to separate those out, and we have to embrace the real child that's in front of us who may not look anything like the imagined child. Uh, their, Their likes, their dislikes, their abilities may not be anything like the imagined child. And so we have to be willing to embrace the real child standing in front of us Recognize they're going to be different than us, they're going to have different goals and different dreams and different talents, and uh, be able to lay that imagined child uh, to rest and really embrace your real child that's standing in front of you. And, and that's uh, one piece of No More Perfect Kids that we look at is uh, really coming to grips and loving our real child.
1: Is this an issue that a lot of parents struggle with, a sense of failure perhaps, because as, as the child reaches a certain age, they, they, they compare the the imagined child with the reality of what is standing before them. And when one image doesn't match reality, do they get oftentimes get very depressed at the sense that I've somehow as a parent failed my child? I
2: think some of us uh, look at it through the lens of failure. I think uh, others of us look at at it through the lens of disappointment. Uh, I think some of us look at it through the lens of uh, still trying to make the child into something that they're not really designed to be. And so we become more controlling and uh, demanding of of the child. So I think there's a lot of different ways that uh, as parents we can respond to this But the most important thing for us to do is to really study our child, get excited about the way that God has created them uniquely. It may be very different than the way he's created us. It might be somewhat different than the way that he's created us. It might even be somewhat similar. Who knows? Uh, One example, I have five children, and uh, four of my five children are musical, and so am I. So I was actually have a degree in music education, and, and so I, I loved that for my kids. I wanted that for them. Um, I was trained to, to play the piano classically. I can You put a piece of music in front of me, I can play it. Uh, most of my kids play by ear. They don't want to mess with the music. They want to hear the music, and then they want to be able to sit down at the piano and do it themselves. I can't do that. My ear is not trained. I don't have that inclination, but they do. Now, it used to frustrate me because, honestly, they really struggled with lessons and learning the classical side of things because they wanted the freedom to be artists, and I was really frustrated with that until I realized that I was trying to put a square peg in a round hole. And I needed to let them be the musicians that they were, which is very different than the way I am a musician.
1: And you mentioned um, that this it, this follows four of the five children. Now, what about the fifth child?
2: <laughs> well, the fifth child has absolutely no inclination towards music at all. <laughs> Nothing, uh, and he had no. He took piano lessons for a couple of years. Uh, but, you know, it became very evident that it just wasn't his thing. Uh, he loves to work with his hands. He loves to build things. He loves to, uh, run. And so those were, uh, you know, those were skills, talents that, uh, I didn't share, but I had to embrace in him. And so, you know, after he did an obligatory year or two of piano and we, we really studied him and said, you know what? this just isn't a good fit, then we had to let that go.
1: There has and, to be some sense of surrendering here, too, then, doesn't there? I mean, in, there in, in the sense that at the end of the day, what we want for them and what they want for themselves or the talent, skills, and abilities that God has, has entrusted to them may not be necessarily the ones on your list.
2: You're right. So surrender is a piece of it. And the other thing that I think is important is sometimes we do have to grieve. Sometimes we actually have to grieve the imagined child or the imagined activities or the imagined way that we were going to interact with our children. We have to grieve that. Um, maybe, you know, maybe your child doesn't share any of the same type of hobbies or interests that you have, and you always pictured that you would be able to do X together. And, and they don't even have any desire to do X. Uh, maybe you're dealing with a special needs child. Special needs parents really have to come to grips with this because that, you know, none of us imagine ourselves having a special needs child, a child that's handicapped in some way, uh, that has some physical or emotional or mental challenges. And so, uh, as parents, it could be as simple as our children just have different skills, gifts, talents, wiring, temperaments, personalities than us, and it could be something all the way on the other side of the spectrum uh, where, you know, a parent is dealing with a special needs child and their life doesn't look anything like what they thought it would.
1: I would suspect there's a big point of perspective here that parents need to be reminded of. I mean, this notion that when kids grow up to be an artist, when what you really wanted was, you know, a doctor or a lawyer in the family. Uh, dealing with that disappointment and gaining some perspective on on really kind of the priorities here. We'll talk about that when we continue our conversation after a brief timeout. Jill Savage is with us, co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief timeout. Come back as we answer the question, okay, so when your little artist fails to be the doctor or lawyer that you wanted, what's God telling you on all this? That is this edition of Lifeline with Jill Savage continues.
0: And now, back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: No more perfect kids. I mean, let's just be done with it, shall we? In fact, maybe as parents, we need to admit that um, our expectations don't always line up with reality. And and the other issue here, too, is we were discussing with um, author Jill Savage, who's co-authored the book with Kathy Cox um, called No More Perfect Kids. Perhaps, too, it's a matter of uh, prioritizing. And by that, I mean, Jill, perhaps the frustration here is we look at them as our kids. You know, we we raised them, we fed them, we clothed them, we pay for them. Um, We nursed them when they were sick the whole nine yards uh, or the whole nine months in the case of mom. (laughs) And at the end of the day, we kind of treat them as if they are our own when in reality they were God's children first. Is that part of the issue here that we're maybe failing to recognize that God has endowed them with talents and skills and abilities, and he has a plan for their life and a calling on their life that perhaps doesn't match the one that we've come up with or conjured up in our own minds?
2: Yes, absolutely. You know, Psalms tells us that uh, we're fearfully and wonderfully made. And as parents, our job is to discover how our children are fearfully and wonderfully made. That's really the journey that we need to be on. And uh, one of the things that, that we talk about in the book is we talk about the concept of um, that culturally we believe that there is something called, that we've dubbed, the perfection infection. And the perfection infection is surrounds us all the time. Uh, we are... Uh, you know, we, we go through the checkout line at the grocery store, and we see the front of magazines that talk about perfect bodies, perfect families. Um, you know, they, they give the, the, um, the perception that perfection is attainable. Uh, we watch a television show. We watch a sitcom, and a difficult issue is solved in 30 minutes. We watch a movie, and a difficult issue is solved in two hours. And that's not the way our real life is. And so without realizing it, we often put some pretty unrealistic expectations on ourselves as well as our kids, and then we leave God out of that picture Mm. because we begin to make an idol out of pursuing perfection or in some way presenting perfection to the rest of the world. And I think social media adds to it as well. You know, it's uh, you know it's very common to see on Facebook, hey, I'm so proud of my son. He made the honor roll. You don't very often see on Facebook, well, today was such an enjoyable day. We got a phone call from the principal because of uh, something that our child did at school. You don't see that very often. So we are constantly... Um, comparing our insides to other people's outsides are, are, we're comparing our children's behind the scenes behavior to other people's, um, you know, I would call, uh, highlight reel behavior, mm-hmm. you know, their, their kids seem to behave well when they're in public and we know what ours do behind doors as well as in public at times. So without realizing it, we often put some uh, really unrealistic expectations of ourselves and others because of the perfection infection, and then we leave God out of the picture.
1: Well, And then that leads to a point that you discuss in the book, and I have to tell you something, uh, Jill, my hat's off to you and your co-author. Um, and you imagine now through the years, I have interviewed thousands of uh, parenting experts. Uh, you know, many that the listeners are very well familiar with. You know, up to including the you know the Jim the uh, Jim Dobsons of the world, and so on and so forth. But you bring up something in the book that I've never seen articulated in a certain fashion before that ought to set every parent back on their heels, and that is this: um, we do a lot in terms, as you suggest, of wanting to uh, see our kids. Uh, uh, be more successful at life than we were. We want them to have advantages that we did not have. Uh, we try to pass on this sense of uh, of perfection, as you suggest, that oftentimes can be very frustrating to a child when they don't have the capacity to be able to to match us in that level of perfection. We're trying to create kind of a you know Martha Stewart kids, I'll call them. You know, they're capable of doing everything and they do it perfectly. That's what we want. But of course, we also understand that that's not reality. But meanwhile, as we're trying to kind of force this false dichotomy, this false um, paradigm on our children, it can be very, very frustrating for them. And you ask a question inside the book that I think every parent ought to really ponder, and that is simply this. Of course, we want to say that we love our kids. And most kids, I think, if they stop and pause... Uh, will say, yeah, I know, I know, I understand in my heart of hearts that mom and dad love me. That's not up for debate. Here's what's up for debate. The big question that I have that's unanswered, and that is, do mom and dad like me? (laughs) Wow. And, And the answer to that question and how our children would respond to that says so much about our parenting skills, doesn't it?
2: It really does. And it it, it really does, and and it doesn't matter what we we say, like, you know, uh, yes, of course my children know that I like them. The bigger question is, would your child really be able to say that? Uh, the, The bigger question is, how do I make my child feel? That really says a lot about our parenting, and that's why... Uh, In No More Perfect Kids, we also give parents the antidotes to the perfection infection. And those antidotes uh, spell out the acronym C-L-A-P so that we can celebrate our kids. We can clap for our kids and see his compassion. To see the world through their eyes. To build a bridge into their reality to have a sense of compassion and empathy
1: for them. And this isn't Um, about a popularity contest. I mean, some parents would say, now wait a minute, Craig, how dare you suggest, you know, my job is not to be a friend to my child. I am there to be their parent. I have to be able to be the one that will give them guidance and correction, draw the line in the sand when need be, provide discipline when necessary. I am not so concerned about whether or not my kids like me or I like my kids. It's important that they know I love them, but I, at the end of the day, have to be the parent and while all that is well good and very accurate there is this little subtle thing going on where the child can walk away as you're as you're pushing this sense of of your perfection on them and trying to create a child that lives up perfectly to your standards that a child can walk away readily and really really have a big challenge here emotionally thinking i know mom and dad Love me, but you know, I I didn't turn out to be the lawyer that they wanted to be, but I'm a really good artist, so I guess maybe they love me, they just don't like me. Wow, what a what a burden that is to carry as a child.
2: It really is. It really is. And you know, I I mean, I am a firm believer, parents are not designed to be their children's friends. I mean, all the things that you just said, I would absolutely agree with. Uh, before I got serious about ridding myself of Perfection Infection Parenting, I was a buck-up mom. Buck-up. Move on. Life Sometimes life's hard. I was just a buck-up mom. I didn't have a lot of compassion. I didn't have, now, I, I gave my kids direction. I gave them uh, certainly a structure in their lives, but I didn't really know them. And that's, where, that's what we're talking about in No More Perfect Kids is a balance between that, uh, certainly being the disciplinarian, being the leader of our children, but balancing that out with truly knowing our children.
1: Well, and, you know, that leads also to an important question that we can elaborate upon when we come back after a brief time out, and that is, parent, ask yourself this question. Is the, the time in your relationship with your child when you give them the most attention Just the times when they're in trouble? Ponder that as we'll take a time out and come back to more of our conversation. Jill Savage, the co-author of No More Perfect Kids. Love your kids for who they are. We'll take a brief time out then back with more as Lifeline continues.
0: And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts.
1: Back to our conversation. Okay, here's the big question for you parents. And that is simply this. Do your kids tend to get the most attention when they're in trouble? And what are you doing the rest of the time? Addressing that question, the book "No More Perfect Kids: Love Your Kids for Who They Are." Co-author Jill Savage is with us, and, and Jill, what about that? I mean, I know that we live very busy lifestyles, and oftentimes both parents are working, and we're running to and fro. We got jobs to maintain, we have houses to to take care of, grocery shopping to do. We've got to get the kids to uh, everything from band practice to soccer practice and everything in between. And then we we think we're giving our kids a lot of attention, but then the the real one on one attention seems in some cases to only really excel when they're in trouble
2: uh, it's true, and I think it's an easy way an easy place for us as parents to to fall into uh, you know the book is built around questions that each of our kids are asking deep inside their heart. They're questions that we asked when we were kids uh, those questions are uh, simple questions like um Do you like me? You know, that was one that that you mentioned a little bit earlier. But another question is, am I important to you? And uh, in today's uh, fast-paced life, oftentimes our kids are only getting our attention when they do something negative, when we're correcting them, and that doesn't tell them that they're important. And so I think we really have to... Um, we have to, and, and also if our goal is to get to know our child, to study our child, uh, only, you know, interacting and knowing them when, when their behavior is negative is not going to help us explore. Uh, so we really need to spend time with our kids. We need to, to dig into to life with them. And, um, you know, we have a, a son that, are, the one that wasn't musical that I was sharing earlier, he loves to run. And when he was in junior high, uh, we encouraged him to do cross-country. And he actually, when he was in seventh grade, he won the the state cross-country meet. And so here he was, seventh grade, he was winning state. And in our minds, we're thinking, by the time he gets to high school, he is going to be one of the top runners and possibly have scholarship opportunities. So, of course, we encouraged him to keep going and keep going and keep running. And he hated it. He hated cross country, and we thought, why? Why he loved to run, but why? Well, we spent some time digging into that, and and instead of just correcting him and pushing him, uh, we, you know, just tried to have some very intentional conversations and really come to understand him. And it took us a while to dig it out of him and figure out what was at the heart of it. But here's the deal: he loved to run. He hated competition. Mm. This is where knowing our child and knowing their heart and, and having compassion and love and acceptance and perception. Those are the uh, four antidotes to the perfection infection. So perception is that we're really perceiving or trying to perceive or paying attention to what's going on on the inside of our child's heart. How do we know,
1: though, when to push and when not to push? Because there's another example out of the book that you share with uh, one of the four musical children whom you encouraged to take a semester of choir, and I understand that he went into that thing kicking and screaming all the way, and uh, a couple of days into it said, forget about it, I'm not going to do it, and all these fights, and you insisted he had to complete at least one semester and slowly all of a sudden he's coming home and talking about new friends that he met in choir practice and they're going to be traveling here to do this and before you know it uh, this became as you suggested inside the book one of the highlights of his scholastic career. So how do you know that delicate balance of, of when to push and when not to push?
2: That is a great question and it comes down to knowing your child. You, It comes down to paying attention to the little things. That same child I also share a story in the book that that same child wanted to play football when he was in sixth grade. And the only place you could do that was on a community team. And so we made arrangements for him to, and we couldn't imagine. He didn't seem like the football type, but he wanted to play football. And so we uh, allowed him to do that, and he came home the first day uh, from practice, hated it. Uh, in tears. I don't want to go back. And we said, "Oh my gosh, of course you're going back. You've wanted this, you know, for years, and uh, you're not we're not raising a quitter." And so we sent him back the second time. He came back again in tears. I hate it. I don't want to do this anymore. Third day, same thing. By the fourth day, I noticed that he had actually bit his nails down to the quicks. His nails were bleeding. This child was so emotionally Uh, overwhelmed and distraught with the possibility of going to that football practice that I remember the day that my husband and I said, oh my gosh, this is not worth it. This is not worth it. It's, it is stressing him out in a way that is unhealthy. And we actually allowed him to quit. So then several years later, of course, when we required him to take the music class that he didn't want to take, uh, we didn't see that same kind of stress. We saw his will, and he was not happy that we were requiring him to take choir, um, but you know what? He eventually uh, grew to love it, and we thought that that would be the situation. So I think it comes down to paying attention to your child, really knowing them, and we could have just kept pushing him to do that football, and who knows where we would have been with him emotionally, uh, because it was obviously stressing him out in, to, a, to a place that was actually unhealthy. But I think it comes down to really paying attention to the little things, to what's going on on the inside, uh, to having those conversations. You know, our kids tend to like to talk at bedtime. And for parents, most of us are like, I want to just tell you good night, kiss you good night, and go to bed because I'm done. You know? Yeah, <laughs> We're just you. done at that moment in time. And that's a lot of times when we get to hear our kids' hearts or they'll share something. And so we have to to make ourselves available for those conversations and know our child and pay attention to those little things that often give us a clue to what's going on with
1: them. And it comes back to such an important point of balance as we've discussed, I think, throughout our visit today. And you mentioned this in the book, Parents, we have to be mindful that our kids are created first and foremost. They may, like, they may look like us in the mirror, but at the end of the day, they're created in God's image, not our own. And we know that God has no stepchildren and that he has a unique individual plan and calling on each and every one of our lives. And what you want for your child, as wonderful and altruistic as it may be, may not necessarily be what god wants for your child and so um uh, learning to know what the purpose and calling those of their is on their life allowing them to experience failure correcting them without criticizing them getting to know your kids uh, particularly as as you point out Jill the difference that it makes when we know as a parent when we should push and when not to push can make all the difference between um not creating maybe or or raising perfect kids, but certainly happy and successful children. And that, I think, at the end of the day, is the most important thing.
2: It is. It really is. And I think the more uh, we get to know our children and then as they get older, it's also important for them to get to know us and uh, for them to know that our failures, our struggles... And because at at some point they need to know we're not perfect either life is hard we all have struggles we all have things that we have to work through Uh, failure is a normal part of this living experience and so the more we help our kids know that those are normal things in their life because they're normal things in our life that also gives them permission to not try to be perfect but to embrace the, what I call the perfecting process that God has all of us in, because we mature best through our failures, through our struggles, through coming to know ourselves,
1: yeah, and, and that's that, the perfecting process. Indeed so, and and of course that perfecting process is one that God largely works out, and so at the end of the day, parents, you can have a deep sigh of relief here. No More Perfect Kids, Just Loving Our Kids for Who They Are. The new book, by the way, you'll find it uh bookstores throughout the Bay Area. Amazon.com has it as well. It's published by Moody and uh, our guest today, the co-author Jill Savage. Information, too, on Jill's website at jillsavage.org. That's Jill, J-I-L-L, jillsavage.org. And our thanks to Arthur Jill Savage for being with us tonight on this edition of Lifeline. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. You know, as we talk about politics today and part of the electoral process underway, a lot of it is indicative of what makes this country so great, so unique as it has been for over 250 plus years of its existence. And you often have to wonder, as I do myself, when I see oddities come up. Um, within the life of our nation. Uh, extra constitutional things, uh, debates over things that, um, that quite frankly, have no business being passed into law, uh, you know, such as the passage of this new um, defense authorization bill that grants the president the power, the authority to declare the United States and its territories a battlefield and then to arrest people that are, are challenged with, not even charged with, just simply allegedly having participated in some kind of a terrorist act without defining what we mean by a terrorist act and to then discharge the military to then go and arrest them and jail them uh, without having been charged of committing any kind of a crime, without giving the opportunity to have an attorney or make the first telephone call or, or uh, speedy trial, any of that. Uh, because, of course, when you, when you do this as an act of war, it comes under an entirely different set of rules that are extra constitutional. And I wonder to myself quite frequently if our founding fathers could come back and see America today. In contrast with what it was when some of them, in fact, literally gave of their lives uh, for the freedoms that we have enjoyed to this point, would they even recognize our nation today? And and one of the interesting founding fathers that I think would have perhaps one of the biggest bones of contentions uh, to pick with the nation uh, that he fought for would be that of Patrick Henry. Remember, of course, most notably as one of the first governors of Virginia. Give me liberty or give me death. That amazing speech uh, that... Um, That he gave. Well, uh, would he, Patrick Henry, know America today? We get some insights now from author Dr. Thomas Kidd. He is Associate Professor of History at Baylor University, winner of a 2006 7 National Endowment for the Humanities Fellowship, and a leading historian of the American Revolution. And Dr. Kidd, thanks so much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. When we talk about some of these things going on in our nation today and, and some of the disputes that, that raise serious questions about their constitutionality, I have to wonder if, if uh, by, by miracle we could teleport Patrick Henry into the 21st century here and he could walk around, read our newspapers, uh, see what goes on in our state houses, uh, sit into a session or two of, of Congress, read through uh, the roll call. Do you think he would recognize this? the very country that he fought for?
3: No, I, I think he would be appalled. <laughs> I, I, and I think most of the, the founders would not recognize what America has become. Maybe Alexander Hamilton. Uh, he, he seemed to be uh, one of the only ones who had some aspirations for America to become uh, uh, what Patrick Henry would have called an almost imperial kind of nation, uh, that H- Hamilton envisioned with the Constitution for, the, for America to become at least a great commercial power uh, and that the government would, would promote the, the interests of, the, of uh, big business and so forth. Uh, but the size and scope, uh, at, at every turn, from uh, the welfare state uh, to the, uh, the military and the kind of military exploits, we've gotten involved with war on terror and everything – I think that most of the founders, but especially people like Patrick Henry, would have a hard time recognizing what we've become.
1: What I found interesting about your new book, Patrick Henry, First Among Patriots, and again, this is newly published by Basic Books and available through Amazon.com, that he he was someone who, in fact, had great concerns to the the point of actually opposing the, the ratification of the Constitution because he feared that it would endanger the rights of the states as well as the freedoms of individuals. Explain that to me.
3: Well that's right and I think this is one of the reasons why Patrick Henry is not better known uh and that he is obscured by people like James Madison because I think people love uh give me liberty or give me death but then they think well what went wrong with him you <laughs> know why why did he oppose the constitution but I think for Henry it's it's very easy to understand and explain he believed that the American Revolution was a revolution against centralized national government power in the case of Britain uh, and their unjust tax policies against the colonists, and so he thought that here we are, uh, ten or eleven years later, uh, and Americans are trying to put a new, more centralized uh, national government over themselves. Uh, they already had a constitution, the Articles of Confederation, which was a very state-based kind of system with a very weak national government. And uh, to Henry, that was done on purpose. It wasn't. A, it wasn't a mistake. It was a different kind of government from what they had under Britain, and he thought that despite there was, there was a number of problems going on economically and so forth, but he thought that the answer is not creating a great new uh, national government, because that's going back to what we had under
1: Britain. Sort of this concept of the power comes from the people up, as opposed to being bestowed to the people from from above.
3: Right, and, and he believed that uh, political power is inherently dangerous. Uh, which all the founders believed that. but but he believed that because of human nature, uh, which he saw as uh, inherently uh, sinful and grasping for uh, other people's uh, property and uh, grasping for power, so he thought that the best kind of government was a was a very decentralized government in which uh, no part of the government could could have too much power. And so you had a weak national government. Stronger, uh, you know, individual state governments and local governments, so that uh, even if one state uh, went awry, uh, they wouldn't take down the whole uh, nation. And so he much preferred that over uh, Madison and Hamilton's kind of system of a a stronger national government. And and you know, people know that the anti-federalists. Many people know the anti-federalists were the ones calling for a Bill of Rights, and that certainly was part of Patrick Henry's concern. The original Constitution didn't have a Bill of Rights, but it was more fundamental for Patrick Henry. For instance, he wanted to take away the national government's power to tax and leave that only to the states. Uh, and what was the revolution about? It was about unjust taxes by Brit- the British, and Henry thought, why should we go back and give our national government the power to tax again?
1: He, he would look at things such as the, the Amendment to the Constitution in 1913, that, by the way, was never properly ratified. Uh, and would probably be uh, much in shock, uh, assuming that we're kind of reassembling the monarchy here.
3: Right, and this is the, the income tax uh, amendment, which is, which is a significant departure uh, from the original intent of the, of the Constitution, but it is clear that the national government under the Constitution uh, at least has a, a right to uh, a sort of a property-based kind of uh, tax system at various imposts and, and this kind of thing, which they have leaned on in the early republic. And even that, Henry thought, uh, was dangerous. He he said, look, if you give a national government like this the unlimited right to tax and spend, uh, maybe it will stay small for a while, but eventually it will become a monster, and we won't be able to control its size and its debt. Uh, and that uh, that warning sounds a lot like what we've become today.
1: Boy, isn't that the truth. If you've just joined us, our conversation tonight with Dr. Thomas Kidd, a look at Patrick Henry, first among patriots. It's an interesting glimpse, I think, and it ought to serve as a major warning for all of us, that as we see the inconsistencies, the unraveling, so to speak, in Washington, D.C., whether we're talking about out-of-control spending, out-of-control powers that are being uh, captured by the president or by Congress or, or quite frankly, legislative Legislation by the bench uh, at the judicial level, uh, this ought to be a sobering wake-up call that, that one of the key founders, one of the principals involved in the creation of our nation in the 1700s uh, would look at where we're at today and would probably shake his head in absolute, total disgust. When we come back, we're also going to talk about different aspects of this, including Patrick Henry's very strong commitment to freedom of faith, freedom of religion, and where that is at today. Our conversation with Dr. Thomas Kidd continues as we look at Patrick Henry here on this edition of Lifeline